Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wopolinik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. This podcast is made possible by the Promethean Project, a nonprofit wellness center creating a one stop shop for mental, physical, holistic health and wellness. For every $100 raised, the Promethean Project is able to help one person in need through different programming, such as the Ryan Odeon Leadership Initiative, the Jared Koslick Mentorship Program or the Strengthening Healthy Families program. Please visit the prometheanproject.org backslash donate to help us make a difference. Welcome back. As always, your host Steve Wopolinik. Uh, This is episode 13, but before we get started on episode 13, I want to take a second to let you guys know of a couple of events that we have going on for the Promethean Project. On October 21st, we are honored to partake in a fundraiser for Unify Against Bullying. We got a grant from them to lead our next leadership group, and so we will be in Holyoke at the Log Cabin on October 21st to receive the grant, but also participate in their fashion show fundraiser so if you guys are interested uh, send us a message at info at the prometheanproject.org and we can set up some tickets for you uh, also that week october 24th i will be speaking at wilbraham munson academy i will be part of a panel talking about youth and technology and how it affects their growth mentally but then also how it affects the family unit we have Something in the works in February um, that is going to be about instruction on the vagal nerve, how it affects mental health, and different ways that you can strengthen it and and manipulate it uh, for better uh, emotional well-being. And we are also planning our next fundraiser. We don't have a date on the fundraiser yet, but stay tuned. It should it should be a good time. Usually. We have a lot of vendors there who are doing wellness services and arts and crafts. Uh, We usually have a couple speakers, some music, and every once in a while we'll have a fitness competition. So I'll give you more information on those two dates that aren't set in stone yet, the one in February and our wellness fair. So that's what we have going on right now. Uh, I do want to just throw a shout out to my brother. He had a successful weekend with... Lausha Loda Show came up into Massachusetts and they had a workshop up in Boston and then out here in Western Mass and it was a success. So big things from the Promethean Project. Now episode 13 usually gets a little shifty with the number 13 
how it's considered bad luck. And I'm actually really excited that our guest today is Mike Gillette, a man who feels like luck is what you make of it. Um, big believer and you make your own luck that it's not a given thing. So I'm happy that his episode was ac- was actually episode 13 um, because it's just really fitting. Mike has an amazing history. I, I can't, I don't have enough time to talk about all the endeavors that he's done, um, except, well, I'll name a few. He was a paratrooper. He worked in SWAT. He was a sheriff, uh, to name a few of his endeavors. He holds two strongman um, Guinness records. He fell off a mountain in 1984, broke his back, was told he would never run again, and kind of just blew away the doctors. Uh, so to hear him speak and, and, and hear his message is pretty amazing. We jump around in the interview. We go from what it's like to be a mind coach to what it's like to be a dad to why positive thinking is not everything that it's cracked up to be. And also, we mess around with some comic information as well. So it's really entertaining. Mike is amazing at his points. Uh, the episode is probably one of our longest, but it's full, chock full of uh, great information. So without further ado, here's Mike Gillette. In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away, our only hope is to break the chains and find our flame. Welcome back, listeners. Today, our guest is Mike Gillette. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hey, Steve. So, Mike, I, you know, in, in preparing for the podcast, I, I went online and, and kind of got some of your history. And I feel like the podcast would just be all of your history if we went through every little detail. So I was wondering if you could tell the <laughs> listeners a little bit about yourself and some of the highlights that you like to talk about with people. Okay. Uh, if I miss something that you think is relevant, uh, please let me know. But um, first off, yeah, it would, it would take a long time to talk about all I've done, which is a, a very polite way of you saying that I'm old. Um, <laughs> so I'm 57 currently, and uh, my adult life has basically been sort of a very non-linear path through a variety of um, Sort of professional disciplines that when I look back on them all seem very connected but at the time it's it felt as though I was jumping from one thing to the next so when I was uh, very young I got it into my head that I wanted to be a force for good in the world and I decided that the way that I would do that was by becoming a police officer so I tried to pursue that I found out uh, almost immediately I was too young yeah. and I needed to do something to sort of, uh, you know, develop myself further as well as, you know, get what uh, adults were telling me was called life experience. And I thought I might be able to do that via the Army. So I would do something interesting, get some money for college, and then, you know, come back to this uh, law enforcement pursuit uh, a little later on down the road, older and wiser and, and such. So I did that. I entered the Army and... It was going to be just a a temporary stop, but I bonded with the Army uh, in, in a very uh, significant way. It just uh, 
th there were a lot of things happening for me personally, developmentally, mm -hmm. that um, were basically facilitated not only by my Army job and my Army tasks, but really uh, by virtue of the types of men that I was uh, sort of being mentored by in those days. And it was a very powerful experience. I was very young and impressionable, and I decided that, no, this is what I'm going to do. And I, I went at that pretty hard. And my initial two-year enlistment was up, and I was faced with a couple of options on, on how best to proceed, professionally speaking. And I decided that I would uh, exit the Army via active duty. Mm -hmm. Although I'm still under the ownership of the Army, I was attending college. I was attending college with you know tuition help from the Army uh, via something called an ROTC scholarship, which just basically meant that I was going to go to school, and when I was done with school, I'd come back in the Army, but instead of being a fry cook, I would basically be like an assistant manager. It was just oh, sort right. of <laughs> a, a, a supervisory line of demarcation. I was not actually a fry cook. That was a metaphor. Um, <laughs> So now I'm in college, and that's interesting. And uh, at the end of my first semester in college, I was um, f feeling pretty well prepared for finals. And I accepted an invitation to go on a rock climbing outing over in the Vail Canyon, which is east of Tucson, Arizona. I was attending the University of Arizona. And uh, the short version of that day is I was hooked up to some gear I was unfamiliar with, uh, and I was hooked up incorrectly. And I... Uh, smashed into the canyon floor, broke my back, my ankles, and um, that, at the time, appeared to preclude any sort of uh, future potential for doing anything of a physical nature. Uh, the Army was out, and any designs on law enforcement long-term were also out. So four and a half years of, well, you know, getting through college, but getting through college with the knowledge that, uh, well, that rhymed, that I was not going to be what I really wanted to be. You know, I, I had a very specific plan with no backup plan, and I didn't really want to do anything else. So in lieu of all of the medical experts' uh, best recommendations, I decided that, no, to hell with that. I'm going to try to, you know, be this guy that I probably can't be, but... I just am going to go there anyway. So I did, and uh, it didn't go well for many years. Right. But about four and a half years, which is now 30 years ago, uh, give or take a, a week or two, I was um, physically back enough that I was a, a legitimate uh, contender as a cop. So I was uh, going at those jobs pretty hard, and it was about 30 years ago this week, I think, that I was offered a position and then you know, from that point on, I uh, w very aggressively hurtled myself uh, in that direction. And that was um, sort of an interesting period of, um, there was a duality. There was the job itself. But uh, almost uh, concurrent with the job, I was developing this sort of alternative uh, identity, which was as a trainer of law enforcement personnel. And I had aptitude for that, and I kept pursuing those opportunities and, and advanced schooling. So I was sort of amassing this uh, growing resume of instructor credentials, and that was actually resulting in me going further and further away from my day job, you know, for stretches of time to teach other agencies, uh, other organizations, these, these myriad skills. So after I'd been a cop for about 12 years, I had 
bumped up against both oceans. And I had taught law enforcement and military personnel all over the United States. Uh, concurrent with that, I'd been pretty active in the martial arts, and that was leading to some interesting opportunities as well. So I got into the training game full-time in 2001. Awesome. And that uh, was about two months prior to 9-11. And 9-11 had uh, some unexpected uh, ramifications for my professional development. I did more uh, airline work post-9-11 than anyone else, and that led to... Uh, projects with the Disney company. I created their behavior assessment program, basically how do you find Osama bin Laden in the Magic Kingdom uh, in a crowd of 50,000 people. That sort of thing. I designed uh, curriculum for the Department of Homeland Security for a variety of end users. And then uh, somehow that led to bodyguard work, which I did for five years. We had a, had a short uh, client list, but that client list included the co-founders of Microsoft, the principal of Berkshire Hathaway, the CEO of Google, um, and so on. And then I did that for five years. 2012, I left all of that, and I've been doing MikeGillette.com since then. MikeGillette.com is basically uh, personal development via you know physical means and mental means, and um, I do that via workshops, private coaching, instructional media, you know, books, e-books, video courses, those kinds of things. Right. And uh, along the way, I've uh, been introduced to uh, Feats of Strength, which was just sort of a, a research project initially. I never really thought that that would be something I could do. I was just interested in the people who did them. But uh, that that happened in such a way that um, when I was 50 and then 51, I uh, showed up in the Guinness Book of World Records and then Ripley's Believe It or Not uh, in that order at that tender age. So basically, uh, uh, so I, I do what I do. I work with individuals. I work with uh, groups. Groups are primarily groups of athletes. And it's uh, very interesting and rewarding. And ultimately, what I bring to those uh, people is this unusual amalgamation of experiences I've had. I learned a lot of things in the martial arts. I learned a lot of things in the military. I learned a lot of things teaching law enforcement personnel. And then, you know, when I started teaching regular people post 9-11, you know, all of these different environments, all of these different lessons and, and ideas and concepts, uh, along with lots of extensive, albeit informal study in, in a variety of disciplines, all just sort of coalesces in this uh, material that I share with people that uh, makes people more awesome. So that's the <laughs> short version, perhaps. That's awesome, man. And I think you hit everything I was I was reading uh, on on the head with that. Uh, it's a good summation. Um, I was introduced to you through some of your books. Um, I've been a big follower of Dragon Door, and I know you released uh, Rings of Power with a good friend of mine. Oh, Nate, okay, Nate right, Harvey. Uh, shout out to Adrian. And um, yeah, from, from there, I got really interested in your book, Mind Boss. And I, I purchased that. Okay. And it was really enjoyable. It's actually in my office right now on my uh, bookshelf. And I, I, I reference it from time to time with clients that I see. Um, so oh, very cool. I was really excited to outreach to you and, and, and schedule this podcast because I've read uh, some of your books, but then also because I'm a huge fan and follow you on social media. And I just think your posts are inspiring, but also hilarious when you see 
like 15 slices <laughs> of bacon and coffee just chilling on a plate sometimes. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> priorities. Yeah. I think I think some of your my favorite posts from you are are just some of the food you get at at diners, just hamburgers and bacon and all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah, there there's been a lot of protein posts over the years. Which I think actually recently you I think you had a post about going to a new doctor and they were trying to tell you to to lower your protein consumption and stop lifting weights. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was that was an interesting experience because that that came after um I had a bout of rhabdo in May. Okay. Which was most unexpected and um because I'm I'm very aware of, of things like uh, rhabdomyolysis and, and not getting it. And I've always been sort of uh, snooty about the people who do. And yeah. uh, so now I've used the word snooty in the podcast, so I've checked that box. Um, but uh, it, it was just sort of a, a, a combination of, of fluky things. And I'm having really serious symptoms of rhabdo in the middle of the night. And I go by ambulance to the hospital. And, you know, when you're having rhabdo and you don't know you're having rhabdo, you think you might be dying. Right. So that's always interesting. Um, uh, can you point so out to, that led to, to people who may not know what rhabdo is? Oh, sure. Um, so rhabdomyolysis is this uh, condition that is uh, brought about primarily a couple of ways, usually body crush injuries where, you know, like say if a, if a wall follow, falls over and smashes on you, uh, it can rupture the, the muscle tissue to the extent that uh, certain chemicals start to leak in the bloodstream and uh, creatine uh, kinase uh, being chief among them, which uh, in, in excess is very toxic. Your kidneys can't handle it and your kidneys can actually shut down and you can die. Uh, every now and then we might read a story about somebody who gets blown overboard uh, at sea and they're treading water for several hours and eventually they die simply because the bloodstream became so toxic from this extended you know, physical exertion. Mm -hmm. So uh, now that uh, people like to train to the max, so to speak, in uh, things like CrossFit and whatnot, uh, rhabdomyolysis is kind of a thing that if you go through the CrossFit coaching certification, they spend specific time talking about what it is and how to avoid getting it, particularly in the context of a competitive, you know, high-intensity high uh, workout. Right. So in my case, I had been inactive for about two and a half weeks following some very minor surgery. So the day that I was released to, you know, resume normal activity. I had a particularly exuberant workout. I didn't think it was anything uh, particularly significant, but apparently it was. And it resulted in me uh, making a hasty trip to the hospital in the middle of the night and uh, spending two days in the hospital getting flushed out with uh, IVs until my bloodstream was at a point where it was deemed suitable for me to walk amongst normal people again. Right. And the the outgrowth of that was I was referred to a kidney specialist and, and partially because I live in the middle of nowhere and the hospital I went to is a, is a very small rural hospital with physicians who don't 
deal with stuff uh, involving people exercising vigorously. They generally deal with stuff involving people who don't, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes so, sense. you know, I mean, I'm a bit of a unicorn anyway. Not a lot of middle-aged guys get rhabdo. So there was not... Uh, there was not a lot of comfort on the part of the doctor who saw me at the hospital and as, as far as trying to sort of sort his way through all of that. So he referred me to another town, uh, to a larger uh, facility, to a actual kidney specialist. And it was the kidney specialist that you were referencing initially, but when I started this anecdote 15 minutes ago. <laughs> and he was, um, it was an interesting situation. First off, he was from another country because... There's a doctor shortage in the United States, and the money is not in the middle of nowhere. You know, the money is in real towns with, you know, real, you know, patient loads and, and all of that sort of a thing. So this, this was a guy from an Eastern Bloc country, a very nice guy, very caring, great bedside manner, all of that. As a person, I loved him, but he was spouting all of the incorrectitude uh, that we have come to uh, know with respect to resistance training versus, you know, cardiovascular training, right. uh, protein consumption. You know, protein is basically going to kill me uh, because we'll look at my bloodstream and what happened that one night. So, you know, I, I really need to avoid foods that have protein. He literally said that. And he was very concerned about me and was really trying to talk me out of resistance training forever. You know, you should right. you should start running now. I didn't say, well, you know, if you're a middle aged person, you're going to get a lot statistically far more injuries running than you are in the weight room. But right. I just, you know, smiled and nodded and realized that we would be never seeing each other again after that. But it's interesting how much, uh, you know, misinformation and because the, the whole idea about the large uh, scale protein consumption and kidney damage it's that's been around for decades there's no right. studies that support that it's 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 an a logical sounding hypothesis until you research it in the same way that it's logical to, to think that fat will make you fat right right but until you actually research the chemistry and, and how, how the body actually uh, you know, deals with these types of things. So that was just kind of an interesting moment. And it was certainly, uh, and it was also current events. So I absolutely posted about it because uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, not one to sit quietly by when uh, misinformation is spread. It's always a good opportunity to sort of address that. And that's a thing that I uh, have addressed in the past, particularly with younger athletes. Right who are being fed by, you know, what mom and dad bring home from the grocery store. Yeah. And, and, I, and there's, there's to this day, all kinds of, uh, wrong ideas with respect to nutrition. So, yeah, I mean, and I, I, I think you, that's such an amazing point because when you, when you think about fat or protein consumption, there is some is some kind of a uh, societal kind of norms or constructs that, that get put out there and they just get repeated over and over again without actually even looking into what it does for the brain or for your nervous system and how important fats are for your nervous system and how important protein is for regulating blood sugar and amino acids and neurotransmitters. And I think to completely just write it off as, Oh, you know, someone says that this is, is bad. is kind of doing a disservice without seeing some of the, 
the really positive things that go much deeper into the chemical biological field than just what society tells you to do for nutrition. Right. Uh, very, very true. And what's, uh, what's interesting is that all of the right information is out there. I mean, you can find it, but it's obscured by so much wrong information. And if you don't really have a, sort of a, a base level of understanding of all of that, it's very difficult as a lay person to try to sort out what is what. So, I'm, so I, I sympathize with, with people who feel like that's just very mysterious. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think growing up, I was a huge victim of that. And nothing against my parents, obviously. They, they did their best. But I think sometimes those norms out there kind of get the better of you. And I know in past podcasts, you've referenced uh, Charles Atlas in the comic books and talking about the 98-pound weakling. In eighth grade, I was the 180-pound weakling uh, because of some of that consumption of carbs and, and trying to eat low fat, but then eating much more and, and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I was, uh, I was that guy in the eighties. I, I figured if that's what people were saying, that must be how things are. So, um, it's, what's really funny is that, um, my body started to change a lot, uh, when I was in my early forties and well, two, it, primarily because of two things. Uh, up to that point, I'd been a cop, so I ran a lot. So, I mean, I've, I've got a small frame to begin with, and then when you, you throw running on top of that, you end up with a guy who stays pretty small. Uh, so when, when the running went away, and I really sort of explored some different ways of resistance training, and I also jumped pretty hard on the uh, low carb bandwidth. So I mean, I started eating a lot, but what I was eating was a lot different than what I had been eating because I was, I was doing that sort of, you know, bodybuilder diet, you know, with a lot of carbs. I mean, you know, there, there was a a reasonable amount of protein, but not like nowadays. And, uh, not surprisingly, I was hungrier a lot back in those days than I am now. Right. You know, when I eat now, I mean, I eat like you know, I always say eat like a man, but you know, you can eat like a man, even if you're a woman, that just means lots of meat, lots of eggs and, you know, and lots of coffee because, you know, there's stuff to do. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So one of the things I wanted to talk about early on with, with you in the podcast is, um, so you consider yourself a mind coach. Is that the, the term that you use or? Uh, that that's a term that I plucked out of the air when I realized I needed a term. I gotcha. And yeah, and that term was sort of a a substitute term for the one that I had been using prior to that, which was hypnotist, because I didn't like the inference of that. Right. Um, I've been doing a lot of work with people prior to getting formal training in hypnosis. I mean, I've been aware of and sort of loosely studying that since I was probably in junior high. I'd always been fascinating, fascinated with that particular uh, practice. But when I started being uh, more uh, visible as a uh, performance coach, mm-hmm. I wanted to quantify what I was doing somehow. Uh, just on the mental side. But what I found is that, uh, and this is my experience. I mean, there's, you know, lots of people who have very successful hypnosis practices and so forth, and they're very happy and successful, uh, being just that. Uh, but the, 
the expectation oftentimes I found was that, hey, Mike, I need you to hypnotize me into this or hypnotize me out of that as though I could just zap problems away. Right. And the, yeah, sometimes, but it was the idea that it was all on me to fix you. And it's all on you to fix you. I'm exactly. just here to help. Exactly. So after, uh, after a couple of circumstances where I was really sort of frustrated uh, at the, the outcomes, because uh, in, in my reasoning was that the framing was wrong. You know, the frame of, of this guy as a hypnotist is, is going to, you know, basically, you know, shoot the problem right out of uh, existence. I didn't like that. So I just dispensed with it. Now, when I work with people one-on-one, -on -one, those techniques still show up, but they show up without any announcement as to what they are. Mm. And there are other techniques from other disciplines that show up as well. And I just, everything I do now is just, this is what Mike Gillette does. You know, Mike right. Gillette is a mind coach. So if, if we're addressing things within the, you know, the cognitive or the behavioral or the emotional domain, it's just mind stuff. And that seems to have been much more effective because if you follow me on social media, you'll know I'm all about tough love and accountability. It's like, I'm not here to fix you. I'm here. I'm going to lead you to the water, but you're drinking or you're not drinking, but that's all on you. Right. And I think that's, so yeah, that, that's the term that I came up with. There might be better ones, but, uh, it's, it seems to do the trick. No, I mean, I think you're 100% on point with the term. And then also, you know, as a, a mental health counselor, which is what I do, um, we get that all the time, too, especially from parents who will bring their kids in or, or people for couples counseling or family counseling or even individuals will come in and they'll say, fix me. And I think mm -hmm. I think it's really important to say, hey, you you have the ownership of this. I can help guide you but it's really your choice. And that's really where the motivation to keep moving comes from. It's not from me telling you, uh, keep going. That can be helpful, but it's from you making that decision and committing to that decision where motivation kind of is bred. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And the other thing too, you being in the, in the, the mental health field as a credentialed professional, I also wanted some sort of designation that did not allow for any ambiguity right. in terms of how I was representing myself because I was very concerned that someone might, you know, come to me with a more therapeutic need and might misunderstand who I was and, and what I was proposing to do. Yeah. So I've, I've managed to uh, steer clear of, of any of those problems as well. <laughs> That's great. They, those can be dicey too. One of the things I love about the term mind coach is that it allows you to speak to those things like cognition and thought and behaviors and emotions. But I think it also incorporates the physical aspect of what you do, too, because I think so many times we tend to talk about mind body and the connection when in reality they're the same thing. And so when you talk about the mind, you're really talking about the body and vice versa. And that's something I think if you think about mind coach comes through. And so I think if you really found a good term to kind of pluck from the air, cause it, it talks about all aspects of how you approach things. Well, you uh, are very uh, in alignment with how I approach things because I always tell people when I start, 
uh, the mind is the body, the body is the mind. So I don't differentiate between the two in, in terms of, you know, sort of a holistic worldview. Obviously, some things, you know, seem to be predominantly physical. Some things seem to be predominantly mental, but you can't divorce uh, the organism from itself. So, you know, we, we have to be prepared to, you know, talk about all of the systems working productively together, which is why even if you are a, a particularly cerebral person, if you neglect the physical, the cerebral is still going to suffer. You're not getting the most out of your mind if you're just on the couch all day, every day, you know, and, and vice versa. If you're, uh, you know, a, a, a superstar physically, but you never crack open a book, you know, you don't talk to anybody who ever challenges your worldview, you know, you're, you're really sort of uh, shortchanging yourself. Yeah. That's a, it's such a good point because I think we tend to think in those dynamics, people who are athletic usually get categorized in one, one group and people who are intelligent or book smart usually get categorized in another and, uh, most of the time it doesn't work that way. And I think sometimes it comes through because you, you spend so much time on one aspect. So that seems to be what you present as, and you have to ease it back and, and balance it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And when I started working with athletes, I, I did find that, uh, the people who were more in touch with their bodies, there, there seemed to be a lot of uh, cognitive correlation, uh, to use a little alliteration right there. <laughs> uh, and in, in some sports in particular, like I have a lot of connectivity with the sport of gymnastics. Right. And what's really interesting about that sport is how astonishingly uh, accomplished ac in an academic sense most of those kids are. Right. Now, and I don't think that it's not just the, the physical training. I think also, too, there are some, some ambient life skills uh, cultivation that happens through the, the intense uh, discipline associated with that sport. And the fact that it's so time-consuming, it almost forces you to become uh, relatively competent at time management and things like that, which generally uh, have a, uh, connection to things like academic success and, and so forth. But it's just interesting because that is such a anomalous sport physically. And I've just seen this, uh, really, uh, amazing consistency in terms of whether it's a male gymnast or a female gymnast, they, they tend to, uh, have very high GPAs. They tend towards, uh, the STEM fields, uh, it's really interesting, and yet you know they're they're obviously uh, athletes through and through too. So the uh, the dumb jock label certainly doesn't hold any water in in a lot of uh, athletic endeavors. Yeah, and that's a brutal sport too. So you feel like to to have that dedication and show up all the time and, and dealing with a bunch of injuries and and you know being marked off for for missteps like a tenth of a step you have to have some kind of determination or dedication to it that I think will probably show through the rest of your life as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an important observation. I, I do think, um, the things that we do, whether it's, you know, gymnastics or the violin, uh, if, if we're paying attention, 
we we do benefit from all of these ancillary lessons that uh, these these various activities can teach us and and benefit from them of course we can also be uh <laughs> very oblivious to those lessons too i have seen that that's true but uh, it's it certainly ups the percentage if you participate in, in things like that. So I, I'm glad you brought up gymnastics because I wanted to talk about that a little bit more because I think this is something um, that that's really awesome. If you do follow you on social media, you see a lot of posts about young women, uh, young girls, gymnastics that you work with. And then also you know, the human side, your family life, I think you do an amazing job with, with talking about, you know, your children and spending time with your children and having that connection. So I wanted to ask you a question based on, um, raising like a young woman or, or, or a girl or, or a daughter and what things you've seen or what challenges you've experienced and, and what joys have you found in, in raising women up and supporting them and, and, helping them become empowered and strong? Hmm. Uh, interesting question. You know, I think that um, the, the athlete work I do really sort of came after uh, most of my parenting uh, tasks were completed. And the reason that I've, I've sort of developed this affinity for working with athletes and particularly my athlete work, whether it's on the strength side or the mental side, seems to skew about uh, three to one females over males. And I really enjoy working with females because I think it's because I was the father of, of three girls. I have a son, but uh, you know, girls were uh, very prevalent in the household uh, for a lot of years. And some of the things that I saw, in particular my oldest daughter, uh, sort of go through uh, really put a light on uh, what it is to be a, a girl now. And my oldest was someone who, you know, she, she was very bright and you know, she had a lot of talents and, and so forth, but she got a lot of attention for being pretty, like a lot of attention. And that is, uh, if you're young, that can be sort of a hard thing to, to navigate. Yeah. And you start to uh, ascribe value to things that aren't perhaps uh, as valuable as, as you might think. Certainly not in the long term. And, you know, so there were some struggles that she went through because that's just a weird way to live. You know, just, just being a hot girl. Right. And it uh, it sort of diverted her attention away from aspects of of life and aspects of you know her own self and her own attributes that in uh, and it really uh, points towards how living for the crowd and see now i mean i can't imagine what it would have been like for her now with you know social media and right. instagram and all of that um i did have a i have a much younger daughter who graduated from high school last year who did live with with all of the uh, you know, sort of the, the technological enablers of narcissism if you will uh, and yeah and but what was uh, helpful is I 
along with my wife, navigated, you know, two previous daughters. So, you know, she was, uh, this much younger daughter was kind of the benefit of a lot of experience. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard for girls and, uh, it's hard for a father who, when his children were very young, really was hoping that by sheer force of, of will, I would be able to sort of, you know, keep all of the, the typical anxieties and concerns that, you know, can plague some young people. I could just keep that away just by staring at it with a mean face, which, of course, is ridiculous. But you believe a lot of things when you're young. Oh, you know, yeah. I, oh, I can handle this. You know, I'm just I'm going to be so, you know, on it as a father that there's literally nothing, nothing bad can ever get through. And then the bad stuff gets through and, you know, you kind of get over yourself a little bit. But, um, you know, the, it's interesting because I was having a conversation, uh, like a couple of days ago with another mental health professional mm -hmm. and we were talking about, uh, you know, the whole family dynamic, particularly sort of being a Gillette kid because, uh, my kids grew up, uh, with sort of a high visibility father in that I was the chief of police in the town that they lived Oh, yeah. That's a hard thing to get away from, That's particularly if you're in, you know, junior high or high school. Um, so there was, th there was that going on, and I wasn't a retiring chief. I mean, I was very visible in the community, and uh, not only in in the PR sense, but also in the uh, we had a big meth issue in the area that I was working. Okay. So I was out doing all kinds of very innovative enforcement things. And, you know, a lot of people rubbed up against me in, in those years. So if you wanted to rebel against your parents, I mean, I provided a really good example <laughs> of something to rebel against. Right. Not that they really did, but it, it didn't make things easy. You know, it's, it's kind of like you hear the stereotypes of the preacher's kid. You know, it, it makes it very difficult for you as a young person to just kind of live life and, and, you know, bump up against experiences because everybody's really looking at you and there's a lot of scrutiny there. So, you know, there, there were challenges and, you know, it's always challenging being a young person. I think it's, it's more difficult now. But the, the most important thing that, that we stressed, uh, my wife and I, was just, just respect in the house. Um, Regardless of how you feel right now, we, we have sort of a, a code of conduct and that this is how it's, it's going to go. You, know, you, you can be, you know, hating me and, oh, I hate you and I hate my life, but you're going to be polite about it because you, you, need, you need to learn that. You need to be able to uh, convey difficult emotions uh, effectively in this world and it's not always going to be when you feel really great about things. So... You know, th things were orderly, even uh, though people were going through real life and dealing with all of their real life stuff in those days. And, uh, you know, the everybody, I think, had the freedom to uh, make mistakes. Um, I was very, very concerned about consistency as a parent, but um, I also knew that, that that consistency would still be 
perceived as inconsistency because you don't raise each kid the exact same way. And they see that because they're keeping track. And you have to acknowledge that. It's like, yeah, you're a different person. Yeah, I know it doesn't seem fair. Sorry. Um, So, uh, but now what's interesting is our three older children are all married. They all have children of their own. So sort of seeing how, how that process is going for them. And, um, it's, it's, it's really gratifying and, uh, it hopefully is, uh, you know, evidence that we, we did okay. Right. You know, every parent has the best of intentions and then, you know, <laughs> circumstances intrude and, you know, things happen and we all do what we can. And there's far less that we can control than we thought we could at the outset. You know, when they're babies, it's so easy. Right. But we think that's hard just because babies are noisy, you know, but, yeah, but it, so then it gets going. Years. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there was a lot to that and, uh, there continues to be. And it's, it's interesting seeing how the role never leaves, but it, it definitely goes through transitions. You know, when you have, uh, children who are, you know, 30 years old, uh, that's, that's a whole different thing. Uh, but still very, uh, very meaningful, very interesting, very rewarding. So yeah, we've, uh, we've been very lucky as parents. I've been very lucky as a spouse. Uh, of course my wife has been very lucky as a spouse. Ayo, but, um, <laughs> I was waiting for that. Yeah, we, but you know, the thing I think that made it as successful as it could be was just that it all was, it was serious business to us. You know, we really wanted to do a good job and, you know, it can be hard. It can be really hard to, to give it the attention and the energy that it needs, uh, because it, it will push you. And, you know, we were all pushed, every one of us, but, uh, the, the overriding priorities seemed to prevail and we're, we're very fortunate in that. That's awesome, man. And I, I think, did one, that speak to your question? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I think it's awesome what you hit upon with having boundaries and parameters, but still honoring their emotions and, and where they are in that moment is a form of parenting. I think that needs to happen a lot more. Uh, so many times we, we tell kids not to be angry or to be anxious or to calm down. And sometimes I feel like that mm-hmm. message kind of, you know, doesn't really honor what they're going through or let them honor their own emotions. Mm-hmm. And then that's where suppression comes in. And that's where a bunch of physical uh, maladaptive, you know, coping skills come in as well. And I think it's important to, to teach them and let them know that your emotion is perfectly normal and you should honor that emotion and what it's telling you, but you don't live in a bubble. So you have to take other people's um, emotions and, and psyches into account as well. Yeah. Well, and it's, I think that's one of the really difficult things for a parent. Well, really in any situation, I mean, you know, a friend situation or a mixed situation. Um, most of us are not that, um, schooled, you know, obviously, you know, the right answer. And even when you know the right answer, the right answer is not always easy to implement in oh, no. under field conditions. I mean, you definitely but, mess up sometimes. Um, but the the thing that we sort of, as parents, just kind of figured out uh, was that, um, you know, 
you have a kid, they're sad, they're anxious, they're upset. We'll just sit with you and, and we'll just be sad together, you know, or we'll be confused or frustrated together for a while. Right. And we'll just, we'll experience that feeling. And then, you know, I, in, in so doing, we honor that feeling, but we definitely don't run away from it. Right. You know, we don't pretend it's not happening. We don't minimize it. We don't ridicule it. You know, I think a lot of parents, you know, calm down or don't be mad. It's like they just don't know where else to go. Right. They're trying to fix a situation that they just don't really have the tools uh, to, to handle. So it, it starts, I think, generally with good intentions. It's just sort of uh, the, the solution is incorrect and it's clumsily administered. Hundred percent. That's I've said a hundred percent like fifty times so far in the podcast, but I think you're hitting the nail on okay. the head. Um so I wanted to talk well, you know, I feel like we could talk about comic books all day. So I, I did want to jump into Whoa, comic books. Yeah. Where's this going? Well, so <laughs> in the podcast I always have two questions at the end of the podcast uh that I like to ask. Um but I want to okay. get there. I want to reserve some time for, for that and comic books in general because I, I know you're a comic book <laughs> fan. And I think I remember seeing a lot of hashtag Team Cap on some of your posts, which I'm a huge Captain America fan. So okay. super excited about that. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> well, w- way to uh, prep the battlefield, Steve. Nicely done. <laughs> um, but before we get there, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about positive thinking with you because I know that this – uh, when, okay. when you do any kind of mental coaching or mind coaching or mental health aspects or even physical, um, we hear a lot about the power of positive thinking. And I think, a hundred again, mm-hmm. I said 100%. Uh, I think 100% that's spot on, but I don't think we talk a lot about how to get there from a negative state. And I just wanted to mm-hmm. pick your brain on a, a little bit about it because I think it's really easy to say, hey, every time you have a negative thought, let's pair it with a positive or, hey, let's notice when you're not positive and then be positive. But I, I don't think it's that easy. It's like telling someone who's just starting, you know, to leg press, hey, you can do 100 pounds now, just do 800 pounds. Yeah. You just got to believe. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's uh. It's funny. I, I mentioned I was talking to this other uh, therapist a couple of days ago. We got in a similar uh, conversation about self-esteem, and you know, she was very big in you know trying to facilitate uh, positive self-esteem in her patients. And self-esteem is actually like she'll have patients come in and say, like, "My my self-esteem is just zero today," and I'm like. You know, that's interesting that people are actually using that specific term. Um, and you know, positive thinking is another one of those off-discussed things. Oh, you, you can do it, just think positive. And it's like, no, that's not the, that's not the way I, I look at things. Not that positivity is something I would ever discount, but I think the way that we arrive at that place is, uh, is important to get some clarity on. So if, if a person is feeling negative, the first thing I don't do is use that terminology. I never categorize things as negative versus positive. Uh, if, you're, if you have a feeling, 
you're not, it's not a negative feeling. You're not having a negative emotion. You're having a difficult emotion because some emotions are inherently hard. I don't want to be sad. So if I feel sad, that's a difficult emotion. It's not negative. Don't tell me that's wrong. Don't tell me that's bad. That's, that's, that's one of the first things. I like to establish some clarity uh, in terms of how, you know, I, I like to frame things. So I, I don't, like to go uh, negative as a result i generally don't use the term positive so much gotcha. because it sort of implies the inverse right. so uh, now i do use ridiculous words like awesome a lot you know well so if you want things to be more awesome then and we sort of you know kind of uh, take it up uh, at that point so i like to look in terms of potentials I like to look at uh, solutions. The one of the things that um, you know I don't I'm not burdened with doing because I'm not a uh, a psychologist is I don't really worry about the root cause. Um, What what's interesting is I have athletes that I work with. And if they're a younger athlete, it means that a parent has contacted me. And this is usually something that occurs online. And if it's a younger athlete, so like a high school athlete, and it's typically somebody who's a high-end athlete, some, you know, somebody who's looking at uh, potentially uh, a scholarship, that kind of a thing. And suddenly their sports performance uh, starts to tank. So obviously we have to fix what's going on with this kid in hockey or this girl in tennis or whatever it happens to be. Now, you know, just because of your background, that uh, sports is often just the means through which we see the presenting symptom. It's not a tennis problem. It's not a hockey problem. You know, it's a drug problem. It's a breakup problem. It's a bullying. It's some other thing. And one of the ways that it manifests is you know, my, my performance starts to go down in all facets of life, but if I'm a superstar athlete, we're only generally looking at that. Maybe we're looking less at our academics and maybe we're looking even less at, you know, our social relationships and that sort of a thing. So I generally, A, because I'm not really trained to, you know, go back and let's sort you out as a four-year-old so we can then walk back to you an 18-year-old and hope that once we've pinpointed the root cause, uh, that insight has suddenly, you know, allowed you to behaviorally overlay everything else uh, up to today and now you're fixed. I don't care what what's going on back then. And it's not that I don't care. I'm not going to ask you about it. I'm not going to try to fix it. Um, oftentimes I don't go back, you know, more than a couple of months. So what's going on? Well, I'm starting to suck. Now they don't say this. I'm paraphrasing <laughs> for expediency. You know, I suck at hockey now and I used to be amazing. Okay. Um, do you like hockey? Yeah. Uh, do you want to keep playing hockey? Yeah. Do you want to stop sucking at hockey? Yeah. Okay. So now we've established that because if I'm starting to suck at hockey and I say, do you want to keep playing hockey? Well, not really, but my parents want me to. Oh, right. okay. Uh, we're done. I'm not <laughs> here to help you fall in love with something you don't love. You know, right. if you want to play hockey, that's on you. I'll help you with that. You know, if you want to start, you know, oil painting instead, I can help you with that. But I'm not going to help anybody with stuff. And infrequently, I get the, um, you know, Johnny just doesn't have any motivation anymore. Can, 
I need you to motivate him. Nope. Right. Johnny motivates Johnny or nobody motivates Johnny. So, you know, some, some of those conversations go really quick. Um, <laughs> yeah. But there's, I think, but we know that there are these sort of pervading uh, or pervasive myths that, well, if you had the right coach, then, you know, the kid would be motivated. No, the kid might like playing more, but it's not, it's not where that comes from. So uh, I'm more concerned about a person's desire to do a thing or a desire not to do a thing and, um, you know, finding ways to make things work better. I don't care about why the problem is other than if the person's motivated to solve the problem. And what's funny is that, you know, because the brain is the brain and it's this weird pattern-seeking box that uh, if, if we kind of fix one thing, that solution seems to sort of radiate into other areas seemingly unrelated. So I'll work with a kid three, four sessions online and I'll get an email from a parent a couple weeks later. It's like, man, everything's great. Even school's better. Even this is better. You know, it's quieter on the house. There's less tantrums and drama. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. That's, you know, don't thank me. Thank the kid's brain. Right. Because that's how, that's how the brain likes to take care of business. You know, so I, I deal with what, uh, with what's put in front of me. There's usually some tangential improvement beyond that, but you know, I can't take credit for that beyond, you know, if you solve one problem, you're generally solving several. Right. And I, the, so I guess trying to sum up this, this notion of, of positivity, I, I just don't, I don't make it a priority because, uh, in the same way, you know, kids come to me or coaches come to me. It's like, you know, Jimmy would be great if he was just confident. Okay. Um, I get the idea, but confidence is a, it's a feeling. So it's hard to predict. And what about all the days that Jimmy's not going to be confident and he still has to play. If you get him really wrapped up on confidence equates success well, if tomorrow he doesn't feel confident, he already feels like he's missing something. And if he's missing something, if he feels that way, he's going to make that come true. And he's going to suck. So, uh, you know, my thing is, because I, I come from this weird background. I didn't start off teaching kids. I didn't start off, you know, coaching athletes. I started training warriors. Right. And if I'm training soldiers, the last thing I'm going to say is, okay, now when you're out in patrol in the mountains of Afghanistan, just try to feel confident. What the hell? Yeah. That would be the most ridiculous thing I could ever say. It's like, no, when you're, when you're out on patrol in the mountains of Afghanistan and you're terrified because there are people out there who want to kill you and you can't see them, but they might see you, this, this is how we deal with that. You know, the idea that you would have to burden someone with feeling positive or burden someone with feeling confident all the time, otherwise you're just not going to be good or you're not going to be effective, is silly. So, in my mind, my method can never fail because I'm not attaching it to unrealistic. Now, they're pleasant and they're familiar sounding premises, mm -hmm. but I think they're fundamentally wrong. Right. You just need to want to do the thing 
And if you want to do the thing, you can accept that sometimes when you're doing the thing, it's not going to be fun or it might be, you know, stressful. Well, because it's important. I mean, important stuff can be stressful. Okay, so you're having stressful feelings today. Whatever, you still have to go and kick ass and be awesome. So let's work on kicking ass and being awesome despite what else is going on with us emotionally. You know, we're not ignoring it. We're just like, oh, I, I guess I'm tired today physically. Well, I can't pretend I'm not tired. I'm just going to deal with that. You know, if I'm, if I'm sad today because something sad happened, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not sad. I'm just going to, well, I'm sad today. But I'm still going to go kick ass and be awesome because I can multitask. <laughs> so if you, if you, now not everybody's going to cozy up to that message. Right. No, no, I'm going to look for somebody who's going to help me feel confident all the time. Okay, well, I wish you well. And I genuinely do. I also know that that model will ultimately fail. Right. So uh, that, in my opinion, it will ultimately fail. So. That's how I approach positivity. I, I think in terms of positive potential, but not just feeling positive all the time or trying to create something out of nothing that isn't real. Because right. in my, my model is that you can lie to yourself, but you'll know you're lying to yourself. And you can't lie to yourself convincingly. You know, it's, it's kind of like, I'm trying, I'm going to hypnotize you right now, Steve. Your eyes are getting heavy. No, they're not. <laughs> All you can hear is my voice. No, I hear other things too. It's like, you know, you know what reality is. And if I say something that clashes with, you know, obvious, you know, reality indicators, then it's not going to work. Okay, Jimmy, you're now confident forever. I don't even feel confident right now, says Jimmy, you know, so. There, there are problems with that. But it's not that positivity itself is wrong or confidence itself is wrong. Ironically, the, once you stop trying to chase confidence, you'll start feeling confident a lot more of the time because the confidence will simply reflect your acceptance of the, the lack of perfect moments that are going to happen and that you can be very amazing even during imperfect moments. And that ultimately fuels confidence. And that ultimately fuels positive thoughts. You'll have an abundance of those things once you stop chasing them. You know, if, if you can uh, get cozy with the reality of things and just want to do the things because they're important and meaningful to you, regardless of how you feel today, because anything that we love, we don't love it the same every single day. That's so true. So... If, if things are ebb and flow, then let's work within that as opposed to trying to, uh, you know, create a myth that is, I believe, unsustainable. That's awesome. So that was a long answer <laughs> to. So, Mike, where, where are you at with respect to positive things? Right, right. But I but I, it's not talked about enough. And I think I think everything you just mentioned hits on so many notes. All right, I'm going to bring you into yeah. comic books uh, because I just love comic books. So we're just going to. I'm fully <laughs> prepared to go there, Steve. On these comic books. So I usually have two questions, and I, I think I may okay. know, know some of them already. Um, but the two questions I, I end the podcast with are I'm going to tell you both because people jump around on it. So I'll let you choose however you want to answer them. Uh, the first question is just out of curiosity, if you could have any superpower. 
what would it be and why? And then the second one is, what do you feel is your superpower in uh, real life? Okay, um, great question. First off, when I was growing up, I was only uh, interested in two comic book characters. Those were Batman and the Phantom. Nice. Both great choices. I thought, say again? I said both fantastic choices. Okay. Um, you have excellent taste, Steve, by the way. So, the, and the reason for that is even as a kid, because I, I started spending my allowance on comic books around age eight. It was right at that cutoff time when comics were transitioning from 12 cents to 15 cents. So if, if anyone's <laughs> listening and you can't even imagine a comic that cheap, yeah, this guy's old. So I was never interested in Superman uh, because the storyline just was boring. He can do anything. There's no drama there. And even the other superheroes, I mean, I thought they kind of looked cool. I liked looking at them uh, on the comic covers, but they have superpowers. I was completely not captivated by that as a kid. I liked Batman uh, and the Phantom because they had no superpowers. Now, they had skills, clearly. Um, and, you know, the, the joke is, well, you know, Batman's superpowers that he's ridiculously wealthy. Uh, I was particularly fond of the Phantom because to me, he was essentially a cowboy. He rode a horse. He had guns, although he generally would just punch you in the face with his skull ring and leave that skull ring mark, which I just thought was even beyond awesome. Yeah. Today, that's still... It's really you know, badass. He had a wolf. He had a wolf, and he lived in a cave shaped like a skull. And he basically... They were, you know, cowboy storylines. He came out into the, the frontier, which was the jungle, and he righted the wrongs of the, um, that sort of befell the, the native tribe who protected him and sort of helped him maintain you know, his, his secret you know, lair and, and perpetuated the, the whole mythology of the ghost that walks, he can't be killed, and all, all of that. So I was really captivated by the fact that he had no superpowers, he was basically a cowboy, and there was very little dialogue in those Phantom comics. Uh, when I started buying Batman comics in the early 70s, they had sort of temporarily done away with Robin, which I was super happy about. <laughs> and Batman was going through kind of an angsty phase. It was the 70s, and, and I think that was happening with some other superheroes who I was not aware of at the time. You know, things were getting really sort of moody and introspective. And as an eight, nine-year-old, I thought that was really interesting. You know, the idea that, that Batman was kind of this tortured soul who... He still tried to do good things, but life wasn't easy for him. And I didn't really understand a lot of the subtle aspects of that whole story arc, but he sure was interesting. And I really liked The Phantom because so much about it was never really explained. You kind of had to, you know, put in your own ideas about, you know, what motivates this guy to be this way. And the conclusion I came to as a, as a kid was... It's just inherently awesome to do good stuff for good people, right. you know, and, you know, cause obviously he wasn't making any money being this guy live. He lives in a cave. Right. Um, and yet somehow he, 
you know, he keeps himself in shape. He, you know, he looks great in his weird purple outfit, and he can't see his eyes. Uh, in case you noticed my logo, there's yep. there's more than a passing resemblance. Yeah, the logo is highly awesome. intentional. Oh, yeah. So, in terms of, I wouldn't want a superpower. I just want to be more of me, and and that's kind of how I always, you know, Batman in my idealized, you know, kid brain was. He was strong and he was tough. He was super smart and he just and he was brave. So I guess maybe their superpowers were were courage, right. and that's I don't know that I have that. It's because I don't think that any of us can. You know, when I talk to kids, uh, I'll talk about uh, being a hero. And not that you can be a hero by declaring yourself a hero, but you can try to live as a hero. You can try to pursue heroic attributes, you know, noble qualities. So I try, I try to pursue courage, and that, that's, the, that's the superpower I'm most interested in, not just in terms of, you know, yeah, I've done dangerous things over the years, but it, it, it's difficult to live courageously to confront the things that you don't want to confront, to say the things that are hard to say, to make choices that are hard to make, and, and to be that, and, and to try to be that transparently, particularly when you have uh, people close to you, you know, in my case, you know, my family, they're always watching, you know, and I always want to be able to stand up to that. I don't want to be inconsistent. I don't want to be weak. I mean, I'm going to disappoint these people. I disappoint myself. But I want to do that less and less over time. And I hope to achieve that by, you know, being braver, by, by making the courageous choice the difficult choice. So that's the, that's the superpower that I won't say that I have, but it's the one that I probably chase the hardest. And it's the one that I'm most interested in uh, maybe laying claim to one day. Wow, that was a great answer. It was geeky. It was well thought and awesome. <laughs> it's probably one of the best things we've gotten on the podcast. <laughs> I can live with that. So I, I, I can handle those adjectives. This is a complete tangent, but let me just ask before we go. Have you ever... Uh, read Earth X Cap, uh, Captain America, Earth X. You know, here's the thing about I'm going to have to uh, make a Captain America disclaimer. I I have not pursued the the comic book uh, version of Captain America. I only know Captain America through his on screen persona uh, via the Avengers movies, which was something I had no interest in until my youngest daughter wanted to see the first Avengers movie. And I got so hooked so fast, so it was ridiculous. I just about gave myself whiplash. Yeah. And I was so... Um, but the, the Captain America character to me was compelling because of, of the singularity. Right. The fact that um, Iron Man, that character is complicated. Captain America is not, and that's what I like about Captain America. It's just the complete focus on, you know, I think the embodiment of uh, very traditional values, mm. and you're just living uh, by a certain code, even though in what I think they did effectively uh, in the films, because I, I can't speak to the comic book, uh, is that they showed a guy who was a man out of time 
who was still within his own time. He did not change who he was to accommodate the era in which he had found himself thrust into. He was still Captain America. He would always be that. And yes, they did find a very, uh, you know, apple pie looking uh, actor <laughs> to sort of embody those traits. Yeah. But I also think he kicked the ass out of that, that character. I just thought it perfect casting. And there, there's a real appeal to me um, because a, a lot of that Captain America persona uh, reflects priorities that, that I still do my best to hang on to. So I liked that a lot. And what was interesting is my youngest daughter responded to that. I mean, you know, she liked all of the characters and right. you know, we got into all of that pretty hard. And every opening day we were at theater, even if it meant, you know, getting out of school because we had to drive a couple hours to the IMAX theater <laughs> because we don't play. Um, I love it. You know, she had a bedroom that was completely bedecked with Captain America stuff. She had more Captain America apparel, socks, leggings, you know, hoodies, just craziness. Uh, so, yeah, we were pretty uh, down with, with the cap there for a while. But I can't portray myself as like a hardcore fan because I could not withstand the scrutiny of, of anybody who was, right. you know, well, but in issue 47, <laughs> when Cap does this, it's like, dude, um, I, I'm, I'm just a baby in the world of Captain America fandom. I, I can't hang with you. <laughs> I, so, yeah, I haven't read any of that. You should, when you get a chance, uh, Google Earth X Captain America. He is okay. A, he's, you're a dead ringer for him if you ever want to go as Cap for Halloween. <laughs> so what you're saying is Earth X Captain America is old and a little feeble looking? Uh, not feeble. He, he's definitely okay. yoked up, okay. but uh, he's a little bit older. Oh, okay. well. He's got a shaved head. <laughs> okay. uh, he looks good. All right. Though. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to have to check that out. You sold me. Well, Mike, thanks again for coming on the podcast. It was great to talk to you and, and hear you. My absolute pleasure, Steve. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at the Promethean Project.org. If you want to learn more about the Promethean Project or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at the Promethean Project.org. If you really do enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends. Please like our posts on social media and Instagram and on Facebook. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to. Again, thank you for taking a listen. And remember that the most important step is always the next one.